Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest film and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Andy Timoner's new biographical drama, Maplethorpe. The film follows iconic photographer Robert Maplethorpe, whose portraits, still lifes, and chronicles of New York City's underground BDSM scene inspired censorship debates throughout the 1980s and remain touchstones of 20th century photography, from his rise to fame in the 1970s to his untimely death in 1989. Maplethorpe is Ms. Timoner's narrative feature debut. Her other credits include the Sundance Film Festival Grand Jury Prize-winning documentary features Dig and We Live in Public, and the documentaries The Nature of the Beast, Join Us, Cool It, and Brand, A Second Coming, as well as the television series Jungle Town. Following a recent screening of the film at the Harmony Gold Theater in Los Angeles, Ms. Timoner spoke with director Maria Burton about filming Maplethorpe. During their conversation, Ms. Timoner discusses her love of Super 8 film and integrating the format into the film, shooting the movie in 19 days after a harrowing development process, and her belief that limitations are the key to great work. Um, so thank you, Andy. I don't know how many of you know Andy's stellar career as a documentarian uh, filmmaker where two Sundance uh, award winner, uh, how many, seven films before this? a TV show. I mean, I've known Andy a long time. She's very prolific. And this film, I have heard about her wanting to do it for a long time, and finally it all came together, and came together very quickly when it finally came together, it seems. Like, it, it's it one of those... 12 uh, years, 12 years in the making. Right. And uh, from 2006, I optioned the rights originally to produce and direct the film. It was uh, called The Perfect Moment, and it was based on the court case which, um, and then looking back, the court case being around all of his work being at one in one show, as you see at the end, is being plotted, and then that's how the NEA lost all their money in forever, it seems. And, uh, and, and all of that kind of came out of this massive rash of controversy right as he was passing away. So the original script looked back, um, and then we took it to the Sundance Labs when I won Sundance, the, I won Sundance the second time for We Live in Public. They called me and said, do you have a film are you contemplating anything scripted at all? And I said, well, I actually do have this film about Robert Maplethorpe, and it was going to those labs, actually, that really made a crucial change in the course of the, of the project. And that's when I, they challenged me to rewrite the film from page one, and then that's when I took over as a writer on the film. Um, and then we cast James Franco, who was attached for some years, Patti Smith, uh, who I was friendly with, uh, was very resistant to the project and kept stopping it along the way. So we were at the altar several times um, with the film, but we could never get it quite made. And then suddenly we pulled it all together when we had like 10 days left, which is how it usually goes. It seems like when the bottom's about to drop out is when everything comes together. So I've come to realize, I don't know why, how, why it has to be so dramatic. No time. Yeah, and then I had like 19 days to shoot the movie. So we shot the film in 19 days all on film all on Super 8 and Super 16. So, and it was 155 scenes, so it was really hectic. 
uh, as my editing skills and editing these documentaries, if you know my work, they're called for many, many thousands of hours of footage. That really came in handy with tweaking, like dropping three scenes or condensing information into every day, just improvising and knowing what would cut together, you know? And that actually is something I wanted to ask you about, the difference between working as a documentary director and then a scripted director. I found it really a seamless transition. Like, I actually love making this kind of film. It's really fun. And, uh, I mean, not, not on that kind of schedule. That was pretty harrowing, but um, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> but the, the, the same... The same thing, we do the same things. Like I need to make my subjects comfortable. Um, I need to set a set of space that they can feel like there's, they're able to be themselves, you know? And that's very much what you want with something like this. You want authenticity, you know, the, the key is authenticity and to feel like you're really, it is Robert Maplethorpe come alive on screen. That is what's most important that you, there's a suspension of disbelief that you're in the 70s in New York you know, that with this limited budget that we had, we could still make you, you know, bring you to that place. And that that's crucial. You know, that's... So th so in documentary, I made a film about Russell Brand called Brand A Second Coming. You know, every day would be this challenge with him where he would be like, okay, what do you have for me? You know, versus, you know, a film that I just made about the opioid epidemic where I'm, I'm needing to... People who are in a place of addiction or coming, you know... Uh, and and now don't have the ego of celebrity and all that. But in, wherever it is, it's about meeting people where they are, you know. Um, so so on set and with my actors, I felt like that was I, I was never I couldn't have had better training, you know. And then as an editor in documentary, you know, having edited all my docs, I that was crucial in the writing in the rewriting process. I think it was 58 drafts, you know, and every day leading up to the shoot, you know. And I got that call the night the day before, like if you don't cut a quarter of this thing by tomorrow, we're not going or crazy stuff oh, like script. Yeah. And I'm in the middle of like timing the next, like timing my day one with my AD and with Nancy Schreiber, our fantastic cinematographer. And you get that call and it's like, okay, I guess I now need to go rewrite the film again, you know? And why had you rewritten it so many times leading up to this? Was that through the labs and things? Were they people different were budget you? levels? You know, at one point we had 12 million. At one point we had 9 million. We had different, yeah, we had def definitely different budget levels, so it could we make it for one or two million? Then with Patty being so resistant, which she same with she, it's an emotional issue that she has that precedes me by decades, and I'm not one to judge it. Um, but she just didn't want anything made about Robert Maplethorpe that's not her in her control, even though this project preceded Just Kids by four years. So she didn't even. I don't know if it was even something she was contemplating when I optioned the rights to this, but I tried to hand it to her in 2006. And she's like, you can't portray me. I'm not dead yet. And then she also, Randy and Fenton, who are good friends of mine, who made the Maplethorpe look at the pictures, the documentary, they contacted me in 2015 or something and said, what have you done all these years with Patty? Like, what, you know, what, do you have any advice? Because she's really, yeah, time. she's like threatening us. And so, um, but I tried, I mean, I tried everything, but that, that was a lot of it. it was like, could we do it without her? But it was really important to me that the, it was a coming of age and coming into his sexuality through his art was super important to me because I feel like as an artist, you know, I, I wanted to make an anthem for artists, really. I, I, I felt like there was an opportunity here 
most all of my films are about what I call impossible visionaries, like people who like take on the impossible and they sort of act impossibly along the way because they have to, they have a vision for something we can't see at the time. And, and they have to withstand a lot of doubt and ridicule to get to the goal, um, which is to make us see what they see. And in this case, Robert saw beauty in what we deemed obscene and he really needed to make us see that so that maybe we would love him too, you know? And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's something where uh, it's important to me that it's like unflinching and seeing him grab onto a, like when the camera comes into his life, it's this tiger's tail. And I can say as a filmmaker myself, a doc filmmaker, that was how it was for me. Like when I picked up a video camera when I was 19 years old, I was a student at Yale. You were there or had just graduated or something. And I was just like, wait a second. I can go anywhere with this camera and I can just, I can ask anybody anything and they're going to answer my questions. This is awesome. This is a bridge into worlds I could never otherwise enter. Um, and it was really like grabbing onto a tiger's tail. And I feel like I related to Maplethorpe that way because he, when he got that Polaroid, he was able to go into these bars and clubs that he could have this, he had this, this mediation, right? He, had, he was safe behind this camera. But then he realized, like, if I keep it riffraff and I just keep it documentary, well, then nobody's ever going to, that's not going to change anything. So it was about making, it was about turning it into Rodan and Michelangelo. It was about turning it into undeniable fine art, collectible fine art, which, you know, made photography a collectible art form too. So he did so much that was revolutionary. But that moment when he comes into his own sexuality, that was crucial. And she was his first girlfriend. There was nothing I could do. You know, like I couldn't remove, like I wish she was a second girlfriend because then it wouldn't be. But yeah, so we had to re rewrite so many different times for different legal issues. And, and how were you able to include her in the way that you did? I mean, how, how did you get the rights for that? Well, there's all? actually several scenes we shot that aren't in this cut that it is even more, there's more Patty to be had mm -hmm. in this. There's more Patty that exists. Um, but, uh, well, when she said, you can't portray me, I'm not dead yet, I thought, I believe I can, <laughs> but I'm not going to argue in the catering tent at Lollapalooza because I thought I was still going to film her show that day, <laughs> but she banned me from filming her show that day. Um, I mean, the summer before we rode a golf cart around Grant Park at the best time, so it just it was a shame. But um, but yeah, I I you can portray someone who's a public figure, right. you know, and Has if it's crucial it to the story, I have no idea if she's seen it. Oh, okay. I think we did. A, it was a very respectful portrayal, you know. Um, I, I would wonder if she'd see it and like. I mean, there was a version where I included her, her her poetry, and then obviously that had to come out and things like that. Like you know, every time you revisit a film, poem. maybe it's like a painting. I don't know if like if you o can overpaint or overwrite. Probably you can. We have some writers in the house that I could consult with afterwards, but I definitely felt like the script got better, better and better, and that sometimes the limitations really are 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 the key. Mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. great work, you know, mm -hmm. um, because you can feel the tension of 19 days on screen, um, I feel like, and sometimes just economizing or combining two scenes makes it even better storytelling, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm probably just justifying the pain, <laughs> <laughs> all of our pain. You wouldn't know. I think it's it's gorgeous. Though I do feel like I may have read an earlier draft where you had started more in the church did is that something that was lost in the editing yeah well i don't think robert maplethorpe's robert maplethorpe without the catholic church um he was an altar boy and um 
And, you know, when he realized he was gay, he was going to lose Patty and he was also going to lose the love and adoration and respect of his family who already he was teetering on the edge there because of dropping out of Pratt and all of that and being sort of different his whole life. So that was really terrifying in a lot of ways. And I think he felt like he was making a deal with the devil because it was through the filter of religion. So yes, my, my script, the screenplay we shot starts in the church um, with an entire other decade of him as a boy. There's a director's cut. This is the director's guild, right? Yes. We're at the Harmony Gold right now, but let's pretend right. we're there. And let's not talk <laughs> about the director's cut publicly right now. But there will, it, there's a chance the director's cut might see the light of day. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And Nancy Schreiber, I've worked with her as well and adore her. How is that? It's so beautiful, which of course you need for a subject. I mean, you want it for every movie, but especially this. You, better do it justice yeah I had I Nancy had followed my work and stayed in touch over over the last I don't know 15 years I'd say uh, ever since dig and she is such a lovely human being her energy is so great I never paid attention to her her work until she threw her name in the hat and I talked to Steve Bellamy who's the president of Kodak I was there I was in the desert um, I was the guest I was like the guest filmmaker for the LA Independence Retreat or something. And uh, I ended up having dinner with the president of Kodak and he said, he had heard me be interviewed and, and I had said that I was making this film about Robert Maplethorpe and he said, well, it would be a crime against humanity and art if you don't make shoot it on film. And I said, well, then I guess you have to help me make that happen, right? I have to convince my producing partners and financier that that's what should happen. So you have to make it affordable. So that's how we, we met and uh, I really credit him with making that happen, um, really helping me to make that happen, which I think is a very important element. And so Nancy was one of the cinematographers that he recommended that could shoot and operate Super 16 millimeter, um, which I love so much, you know? I shot all the Super 8, and I always shoot Super 8. I, I shoot my movies, you know, I shoot my docs. So I, sh I always had Super 8, except for We Live in Public, which is so futurist. It's so much about the virtual boxes that we trap ourselves in that there's no room for soup. Like, Super 8 doesn't apply. But, um, but generally, I do. When I realized we had 19 days, I just bought a bunch of Super 8 film and brought my camera, and I just kept it on my chair and would shoot in between takes, shoot the actors, just to get peanut butter for the bread, you know, and just anything I could pick up that would make it feel more authentic. And also, just Super 8 has this wonderful perfectly imperfect quality. It's almost like Christmas when you go to the transfer because you have no idea what's going to come out. And But Nancy, uh, looking at her work, it was so, there were all these moments in, in different scenes in her work that were so gorgeous, but then there was nothing that was consistently gorgeous. And I was like, I was a little bit, felt like I was maybe rolling the dice, which I am wearing dice right now. Um, I'm, this is a Maplethorpe rep. This is his jewelry that he made. Oh. Yeah, so this is a replica that we used in the movie. I don't usually wear dice uh, or die and walk around with it, but it's opening weekend, so it you works. Know, I've had it yeah, on for opening weekend. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was a little bit of a, a risk, I felt like, uh, because I hadn't seen one thing. And then I thought about all those frustrating times as a director that people don't hire you or they or you see executives just go for, oh, he did that or she did that one thing so now we know it's a safe bet, you know? And I thought, well, I don't, 
like I don't well, operate that Nancy way. Like also, Nancy has the capacity. Doing she's never things with no. Well, that's no why I said money. she has no. She had she had no opportunity, and she maybe didn't have a director who was gonna like push her to be like she would like say you're killing me at some points, you know? Because I was just like, this has to be as beautiful as Maplethorpe. Like if it's not beautiful, right, right. it's going to fail as a film. So you know, showed her City of God, and 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 I. I just went for side light and backlight and as much to put as much contrast in the frame as his life contained, you know, and I felt like his life was black and white and this film needed to be from like, you know, the beginning to death. And I had to have the, I had to, couldn't tell the story without AIDS. You know, there's just no way to do that. So it was not going to be one of these biopics where you're, you're in a day in the life or month in the life, you know, as much as I like those. There wasn't one month I could pull on for Maplethorpe. So it's like black and white in such succession, it turns gray, mm -hmm. you know? And I needed the cinematography. We needed it to be like that. Um, and she's so delivered, you know? She knocked it out of the park. And, and She's amazing, to, uh, and she's 70. I think she turned 70 already. She's amazing, right. and she's she a legend. Amazing. Yeah. And she can just roll with it. She can operate and... She's like a bird. She's very, she's, she's hyperactive. And back to, you were saying about your uh, doc directing experience, working with the actors, being there in the moment. Did you have any rehearsal time with them? How did you work with them? Not really. I mean, we had some actors, I mean, Matt doesn't prefer it anyway to rehearse. We had a lot of like sit downs between the main principal characters, you know, with those actors to just talk through what to, you know, what my intentions were when I wrote it, what we were looking at, the, what questions they had. Um, Was that before filming started? Yes. Okay. So we had like a week in New York or a week and a half or something like that, you know. Um, some actors wanted to meet with me separately and go through the scenes, and that was great. Awesome. But um, Matt did not want to do that. So um, so we didn't. I mean, we talked through a lot of a lot of it. Um, and we worked on his accent. That was what he was most nervous about. But we shot the movie backwards because I, I needed him to lose like 20 pounds because he was coming off Prince Philip. So I cast Matt six years ago before The Crown or any of that stuff. My son, actually, who was nine at the time, was a Doctor Who fan. And he's like, Mom, you need to cast Matt Smith as Robert Maplethorpe. And I thought that was absurd. I really did. Because if you knew Matt Smith as Doctor Who... It just really didn't feel like a connection. But he looks like him. Well, yes. Now, I mean, well, not now, but it's just kind of like we. I decided the left side of his face really looks like Robert Maplethorpe. So if you watch the movie again, there's a lot from that side of his face. But I, I mean, there's he does look like him. There were actors that looked more like him. That was that wasn't it. It was the gravitas. It was that quiet tension he had when I met him that day. And I took the meeting because well, his agents called a week and a half after Shuki said that to me. And I thought, that's really strange. Like, I never even thought of Matt Smith. And now Shuki just said that. And now my casting directors, I mean, now my agents, uh, agents are calling about it. I, I guess I'll go to lunch. So I went there and he was just so mercurial. He had such a tension in the room and uh, a shyness, but it was like dark a little bit. It was like the person I was writing, you know, it was really. And so I was so excited about him reading and he agreed to read, which I don't, I was thinking he wouldn't do today, but he corrected me in New York a couple weeks ago. He's like, I would totally read still, which I thought was amazing. Um, but anyway, he read, and I was cutting brand at the time, and my assistant came in and said, Matt Smith readings come in, and I said, is it good? And she said, not really. And I said, well, I don't want to see it then. Um, so I've never actually seen that reading. I said, ask him if he'll do it again. 
And so then uh, two days later, she walked back in and said, he did it again. I said, is it good? She said, it's pretty good. Wow. And it was jaw-dropping. It was incredible. It was incredible. The entire team was just like, this is our, this is our Maplethorpe. But at the time, we knew we couldn't get it financed with him in that role. So luckily, everything work we just we knew it had to be him was his being attached ultimately part of the financing coming through oh well, yeah i think it was really helpful at, at you know then the crown happened and we got lucky like that mm -hmm. but it was it was we made a commitment to him before that mm -hmm. because he was the guy mm -hmm. and we just figured we're going to make it happen if we have to bring the budget and oh go andy rewrite the script again so are you did. allowed to talk about what the budget finally was i don't know no, if there's no. any rules really. well i mean just with your own and it's all about breaking the rules. <laughs> I was like three. It was whatever was the top that you could be and oh, still be uh, tier one. Un, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, so 3.75, 3.5. And you had 17 days, 19 days? It was, it was supposed to be 21. Uh-huh. But um, then it was like, well, you're going to lose a day now. Like, now that you want, now that your art department did a location scout, you're now losing but After the tech scout, I lost period. a day, and then and then I had twenty days, and then it was the last day was all the exteriors and him walking through the city, and there was this whole in the script this whole midnight cowboy part where he walks the city. Um, ah. After the Whitney, he leaves the Whitney, and then he walks to the park where he meets Patty. Mm -hmm. uh, there was um, suddenly no way to do that because we couldn't afford permits. I don't even know. It was just it was just period cars alone to. I don't know if much. you noticed, there's just a couple cars that keep rolling around. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't paid attention, that's interesting. <laughs> now I'm ruining your second viewing experience, but wow, what a strange, incredible question. First of all, uh, to repeat for the people in the back, um, thank you. I'm, I, it started with a slew of compliments, that's all you need to know. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, uh, it was... <laughs> um, that 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 he forgot that Matt was Matt and that he was not watching Robert Maplethorpe pretty much right off the bat and that everybody was it was very believable New York in the 70s and 80s. Um, so thank you for that. Um, and no, and then is it was that Tim Daly's brother, uh, son playing Brandon uh, Brandon Sklenar as the actor. No, it's not Tim Daly's son playing Edward Maplethorpe. That's really interesting because Tim Daly actually played Sam Wack. Tim Daly's a dear friend of mine. And no, no. But I love the rumors that are going to start out of this. <laughs> I should have let that ride. Um, I love Tim Daly, and Tim Daly did a fantastic job as Sam Wagstaff at the Sundance Labs. He came to the labs, and he played, my, he played Sam for me. Tim Daly was not available. He's too busy now. Um, so you were just feeling his... But Tim's son, I know, is an actor. It's right, really right. amazing, though, that you said Tim Daly. Um, I have to write him and tell him that you said that. But uh, Brandon did a fantastic job. And um, Matt Smith and I were doing a piece for The New Yorker. The Guggenheim has a big show going on Maplethorpe right now called Implicit Tension. And we were walking through there with New Yorker magazine a couple weeks ago. And, uh, and who was there but Edward Maplethorpe? Um, and it was just like, Wow, and we, we hugged. I had only met him once before. Um, he really tries to stay away. He's a little fatigued, obviously, with just how much of his brother, how much being in the shadows. And I, I just, we didn't really talk too much during the making of this, but he said he saw the movie and that he felt that Brandon really portrayed him accurately and that he was really pleased with the film, and that meant a lot to me. So that was great. 
But was that your question, Tim Daly's son? Are we moving on? I think we have to move on. We just got the five-minute mark, so we gotta, right. we got to do five questions, and I'm going to okay, answer fast. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank so you. So asking he, about the uh, editing techniques and her background as a documentary filmmaker. So a lot of, I mean, I edited the film. Um, this cut, I didn't complete the edit on this cut. I edited the director's cut. But um, a lot of the scenes are still in there and the way I cut them. And, um, I mean, the way I went about it, again, is like, are, you want to be there. You want to feel like you're there very present and in that world, you know? So I almost, I, I love shooting with two cameras. Um, I love shooting with Steadicam. I love being really able to move throughout the space, really flexible. I wanted it to have almost a documentary feeling. Like, and I wanted to anchor it with real footage sometimes, like archival footage, because like whether it's the TV and the, at the, when he's checking into trying to get into the Whitney at first, just giving us a time and a place where we are, or seeing Reagan, who is responsible for the death of so many gay men, you know, and Pac-Man as you come into, which I realized there's a shot of Pac-Man and we live in public too. It's like Pac-Man in both films. <laughs> I realized that recently, but um, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I feel like understanding this is not that long ago. Look at how far we've come, you know, but what he was dealing with, with Stonewall or all of that, you know, just trying to really uh, honor the real story that it is. Um, I wish I could give you a more eloquent answer on the, on the editing. I don't know. I mean, I just cut, you know, you cut for, it's interesting with this kind of film, with a scripted film, because you have takes. I mean, sometimes we only had like one or two because of the schedule, but still you sometimes have takes and you can slide, you know, audio under the best visual or whatever it is, but it's always about what's going to make the audience feel something you know, be there. And I also really love judgment as a, like putting you in a position where you're empowered to, to grapple with your own feelings of judgment, you know, because judgment at the end of the day is a futile thing. Um, we're all flawed. And I wanted you to come out of this inspired, even though um, somebody wrote me coming off the opening the other night that it, it was the triumph, she said, of the film is that it's such a, a, it's such a tragedy, but that somehow it's uplifting. Like there, there's this buoyancy and there's like this feeling of inspiration coming out of the film, even though it's so sad and so dark and he makes such dark choices. I really love that because that's, that's the thing is I want you to feel as an audience that no matter how flawed you are, you can make great things happen, you know? And I feel like that's a lot of the mission with a lot of my work is like step out of line, break the rules, you know, don't, don't feel like I can't do that thing feel like you can do that thing, you know? And that's why I didn't want to make a documentary about Robert Maplethorpe. I really wanted to bring him alive. So you could feel that, you could see that. Um, I think that's very eloquent. And not, and not one minute long. Yes. <laughs> so uh, as a director, how did I deal with the, the sexuality in it? So it was really important that it not be X-rated. Um, and so obviously, you know, that scene where they're sort of intimating that they're jerking each other off for lack of a, that's a terrible way to say it, but what are you going to say? It's what it is, right? Yes, yeah, what it is. <laughs> um, you know, it was about making Matt comfortable because it was a lot of exposure for him. So I, I used my iPhone, quite frankly, um, to take pictures off the screen and even to shoot the take 
a rehearsal, to shoot a rehearsal, a closed rehearsal, so that he could see that he looked good and so you could feel comfortable. Um, and then it's about, you know, skillfully shooting it so that you get that feeling of what's happening just out of frame, which in a way is so much more scintillating than seeing anything, I think. Um, there's only one real penis in the film. I don't know if you can spot it. Do you, no? Except for lots in the photographs. Yes. Oh, that's true. One moving live penis. <laughs> I don't know if it was moving, but maybe by millimeters, um, which is on the bed, on that beautiful shot of the three Oh, the three men. of them. That's the one real penis. Um, I was going to shoot Milton's penis, um, and I thought that was in the contract, and we had a big argument, uh, like a nice argument, but me and McKinley, I was like, but I thought it was in your contract that I could film from this direction and then about a minute into the <laughs> we're standing out in New York on the street talking about shooting his penis and then I went wait a second are you circumcised and he said yeah I said okay game over like don't worry about it you get your wish you'll be shot from behind so um so yeah I mean just a kind of a mixture between practical and you know on the fly and you know you have to compromise your vision here and there uh, but I think that worked out I think you did Actually, it wonderfully. Yeah, then you you go to the photograph and yeah. I mean, it's an erotic film. You know, somebody was saying last night just how sensual and how sexy they thought the film was, and that's really important because sex was so important to Robert. And he became, you know, the arc of the film is I see it for him is from a person who's really just finding himself to someone who's quite hardened and quite predatorial, and really finds the imperfection of relationship hard to reconcile with the perfection he puts in every frame. He but possess people with those frames you know he would sleep with somebody and take their picture that was part of the way he went about it and uh and that was as that was the relationship in certain ways and that's very sad there was a lot about that too that I hope comes through you know that makes people I mean certainly for me it made me realize you know that do you want to be married to your work as an artist you kind of have to be but then what about love like what about dealing with the imperfection of relationship and allowing that to be, you know, and I feel like he lost his way there. And so it's a bit of a cautionary tale in that. All right, well, thank you okay. so much. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Maria. Thank you. For doing this. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, if you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.